It's good to be with you this morning, and we're going to continue in our sermon series called Streams of Living Water. Last week, we had a wonderful introduction to the streams as uh, Ed Peoric, Dave's dad, came and spoke to us about the contemplative stream, and I hope that you took a little bit of time to dive into that contemplative stream this past week. And now, um, before we dive into the tradition that we'll be mainly looking at this morning, I wanted to talk a little bit just about streams of living water and what this image uh, has uh, taught so many people throughout the Bible. Uh, And so one of the scriptures that I want to start with is from Psalm 126, if we have that one. Psalm 126 says this, Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Now, in order to just illustrate how far we are removed from such a scripture, let's talk about the nearest stream to us, known as the L.A. River. Anybody ever been in the L.A. River before? Absolutely not, right? It's mainly known for its graffiti, right? Um, Or perhaps a good uh, car chase scene in a movie. These are the ways in which we relate to the closest stream of living, hopefully living water uh, near us. And I did a little research for you (laughs) this week because I was actually curious. Why is our stream made of concrete? Um, and every other stream gets to flow. And so maybe some of you know this, but in 1938, there was actually a massive flood, and the L.A. River actually ended up killing about over 100 people. And so in order to stop the flooding from happening, they spent over $78 million, it translates to over a billion dollars now, in order to make dams and make our stream into a concrete stream. There are places where you can swim in it, but it is very far from this uh, image that the psalmist is bringing to us. Lord, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Now, the psalmist wasn't just talking about his local stream, but he was also using the image of his local stream, and there is this unique stream that the psalmist is talking about near the Negev. Actually, streams in Hebrew here is translated as wadi, W-A-D-I. The wadi was a particular kind of stream that was actually dry for most of uh, the year because it was in a Middle Eastern desert climate. But then every so often when the rains came, the wadi would rise up and become a mighty rushing river. And so the psalmist is praying, Lord, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev because in a way the psalmist is experiencing a dryness. Most scholars believe that in Psalm 126 that this is written when half of the nation of Israel is still in exile. And so the desire of the psalmist is that God would bring home all of his people and in a way restore what is dry, what has run dry over time. And so it's a beautiful image, a beautiful prayer 
that streams of living water would be restored. This is picked up mightily by Jesus in John chapter 7, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I know I say that a lot, but I want to read just a section of that scripture. It'll be on the screen as well as kind of our main text this morning. Before I do, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with us in this time um, as we read your word, as we come to reflect on what it means to be renewed and restored by the streams of living water that flow from you, Lord Jesus. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen. John chapter 7, be in verse 37 and following. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the background of this story, some of you may know, is that Jesus is at the festival of the tabernacle. At the beginning of the chapter, he was invited by his brothers to go to this festival. It was an eight-day festival. This festival uh, was one of many, but it had its uniqueness in that it stood on the precipice of winter. And the reason for it was that Jesus grew up in an agricultural society whose land was so dependent on rain and whose flourishing was deeply dependent on God's blessing of rain. And so in order to pray and to worship God and to ask him for the rain each year, there was a festival of the tabernacle. And one of the ways they would celebrate is that they would get temporary tent structures called Sukkots. And Sukkots would line the city of Jerusalem, and for eight days they would listen to rabbinic teaching and have different forms of worship, all related to water. And so Jesus says no to his brothers, um, going to the festival of the tabernacle, but it's not that he's not planning on going. He shows up. In fact, he shows up right in the middle. And he shows up to interrupt. Um, and he starts talking about who he is in light of what's going on in this worship around water and this teaching around water. And you may have noticed in the text that it says in this particular text that on the last day of the festival of the tabernacle that Jesus said in a loud voice that he is the living water. Now the background of the last day of the festival of the tabernacle is that there was a tradition where some chanting was done. Maybe it's familiar to you if you've been here on Palm Sunday before, but in the background of the festival of the tabernacle, on the last day, there was a ritual where the people would shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
And then the priest would take a pitcher of water and a pitcher of blood and pour it out onto the altar as a way of providing a sacrifice to God. Jesus is rushing in and in a loud voice over this declaration of Hosanna, Hosanna, this desire for a king that the people were expressing, he comes in and in a loud voice over this shouting and over this dramatic ceremony, he says, I am the one you are looking for, essentially. I am the living water, and anyone who knows me, streams of living water will flow out of them. And so we're looking at these streams of living water because, in a sense, we want to echo the psalmist and to come to know how Jesus has made it possible for us to be renewed and restored and possible for the church to be renewed and restored by streams of living water. And we don't always have this free-flowing stream of living water. Sometimes, like the Negev, we run dry. And Richard Foster has done this wonderful job of tracing six different streams of the church all the way back to the New Testament church. And did you notice that John gives us this helpful note in the midst of the story? He says that at that time, they were not really understanding what Jesus was saying when he says streams of living water will flow out of you. But by the time John was writing this text, this gospel story, they had received the Holy Spirit. And so they had new insight into the story that happened in John 7. That was a prophetic utterance from Jesus. And so Richard Foster in his book, Streams of Living Water, shows us what those streams are, look like and are biblically running through the entire Bible all the way through the New Testament church all the way up until today. And so last time we talked about the contemplative stream. This week we're going to next go into the holiness stream. After that we'll talk about the charismatic stream. Then the stream of biblical justice. Then after that we'll talk about evangelism. And finally we'll talk about the incarnational stream of the church. Now as I say those, you may be familiar with some of them and feel really comfortable with others. Um, when I say holiness, you might think, oh, holier than thou, I don't, I'm not into that at all. Um, when I say social justice, something might come to your mind. When I say evangelical, something might come to your mind. When I say incarnational, you're wondering what does that even mean? And so we're gonna do our work of seeing if together we can come to an understanding of how God uses all of these streams in order to make a mighty rushing flood of the church, a powerful church. When, thing, when streams come together, they become powerful. So let's talk a little bit about the holiness stream this morning.
like I said, sometimes uh, these uh, types of words have so much baggage to them that they really get in the way of us really understanding how the Bible speaks about them. And the first thing that we need to understand when we're talking about holiness is that holiness in the Bible is so, so few times is it discussed externally. And most of the time when holiness is discussed, it's discussed internally. Meaning that the invitation when we think about holiness is to examine our own heart. That's also found in this amazing text in John 7 and 8 because as you turn the page from this declaration of John saying, I mean of Jesus saying, I am the living water, if you go to John chapter 8, the beginning of the next chapter, there's a very famous story that you all probably have heard before where in this Sukkot, okay, the next day on the last day of the festival of the tabernacle, there's all types of partying and celebrating that's going on and drinking of wine. And so that night there was a woman that was caught in one of these Sukkot, these temporary tent structures committing adultery. And the Pharisees found her and they were very upset. In fact, they were getting ready to stone her and so they brought her to Jesus to see how Jesus would respond to this incident. And they said, according to the law, this woman should be stoned. She's been caught in adultery. And do you remember how the story goes? It's a mysterious thing that Jesus does, or so we think, because maybe we're not so connected to what was going on at the Festival of the Tabernacles. But what does he do? He turns... And it says he writes something in the dust, okay? And because they had many teachings at that time about water, many scholars think now that what Jesus did is found in Jeremiah 17, 13, which would have been a text that was taught on in that week. It says this, Lord, you are the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And so it's probably the case that when Jesus was um, challenged by these Pharisees to stone this woman that what he did in response was he turned and he wrote their names in the dust. And they would have known exactly what he was saying. And then he says to them, he who has no sin, throw the first stone. You see, those who had been the keepers of the law had turned to dust. They had taken the beautiful streams of living water and turned them into dust. And Jesus was there again to restore the waters, the living waters. And so we can see how there's a conversation about who is truly holy in the story. Is it the one who was caught in external sin or the ones who wanted to punish? 
and overpunish and hold this woman to the letter of the law. And Jesus comes and says, no. What I desire is life and goodness. And what I want you to do is to see who you are in light of life and goodness and to examine your own heart, not spend so much time looking out at everyone else's sin and trying to point out all of the ways in which they fall short and to look internally at yourself and begin this process of examination of who God is and who you are in light of who God is and his goodness and his love and his compassion. Really, this stream of holiness is God inviting us into the life that will be the most joyous life that we can possibly have. A well-ordered life is what holiness is all about. And so in a sense, when we talk about virtues, what we're talking about is the habits that we do every day that give us a well-ordered life. And we, when we talk about vices, what we're talking about is the habits we choose to do every day that we know guarantee that we will have a less happy life. And yet we struggle, don't we? We struggle to, to love the good. If you look at the stories our culture is telling, there is an obsession with the darkness, right? Why does the darkness come? Why? Do these characters break into becoming so dark? How does that happen? And yet, we have so few characters of nobility now that we raise up and we say, no, we, we want to strive towards the goodness of what it means to be human at its best, to live into virtue and goodness. That's why I like Lord of the Rings. That's one of those stories that gets us to the goodness, right? And and. One of the ways we can even examine this is in our own families, in our own lives. Are we more comfortable with a dysfunction? Or are we striving towards a healthy, relational dynamic? And do we allow God to invite us each and every day to grow in our ability to love the good to love the functioning life that God wants for us, to love the life of selflessness and care of other that God wants for us, and so to live into God's holiness because that's what he desires for us more than anything else. A story that struck me over the last week as I was thinking about holiness as a, a friend of mine I've done life with him for about 12 years now, and ever since I've known him, he has been one of the most successful business people I have ever met. In fact, I stand in awe of that business brain, you know, that can just figure out how to make money and sell, and he had a laundry business, and it was the type of business that I didn't know a thing about and didn't understand how you could possibly sell anything with what he was doing, but 
he worked really hard with three business partners and he worked himself to the bone and his question was always, why am I working myself to the bone for this laundry business? And his goal was always, okay, one day I'm gonna make a bunch of money and then I'll be free to do whatever I want. Well, one day, that day came and his business got bought out that he was the part owner of and he made a lot of money. But as you can imagine, once he had done that, and it time, the time came for him to have this freedom he thought that he had bought, his other two business partners came to him and said, look, here's the business plan. We're gonna make twice as much money. We're not gonna make the mistakes we did in the last business. And so are you gonna sign up again to go for uh, even more money? And so he said, as he was wrestling with this new invitation and whether he should do it or not, he got this uh, phone call from one of his high school buddies who had become an English teacher. And another English teacher, one of his colleagues, had just retired, and so he was going through her desk. And in her desk, he found one essay that was written. And it was written by my friend. And he said, do you want it? He said, sure, I'll take this essay. And the essay was written on the great Gatsby. And the story, uh, and in his essay at the bottom, it had said, Mike, you have a wonderful point of view on this story. And he had written all about how the Gatsby had lived his life for material things and so lost himself. And his ability to have a true identity. And so as he's sitting there th wondering what decision he could make, God gave him this letter to remind him of what a well-ordered life looks like and to invite him to live into the gospel narrative that goes beyond just making money and into the life that he desired for himself but didn't quite know how to get to. And so, what is your letter? What would God write to you and say if you could remember your value and how you could live into your best self, the way that God made you to be, what would he write to you? I'll leave you with one of my favorite traditions within the holiness tradition, a really fascinating bit of American history, this small group called the Shakers. Maybe you have heard of them before. Originally, they were the Shaking Quakers, and uh, the Shakers were this group that was known for their communal living, for their simplicity. They made this beautiful furniture, this beautiful, simple furniture, and for their emphatic worship that sometimes they would worship so much and dance that they would begin to shake, and that's how they got their name, the Shakers. Now, one of the reasons they don't exist anymore is because they all took on celibacy as part of their community. So they couldn't 
procreate, and so they didn't exist except for one small town where there's still some shakers called Sabbath Town. But they have this beautiful hymn that has lasted over a hundred years now that goes like this, and it speaks to holiness. It says this, "'Tis the gift to be simple, "'tis the gift to be free, "'tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, "'and when we find ourselves in the place just right, "'till we be in the valley of love and delight, "'when true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we shan't be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight. Turn, till turning, turning we come round right. You are invited to drink from the stream of holiness this morning. As Jesus says, if you drink from the living water that he offers, you will never thirst again. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your living water. Teach us how to drink from it and to truly desire and to thirst for you above all else in this world. I pray for your refreshing to go out on this congregation, Lord. Uh, May you restore them, renew them, heal them, Lord, would you uh, take their burdens from them and remind them that they can live in the way that you have made them to live. Give them your goodness, Lord. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen. Will you stand and receive this?